We're in the middle of a uh, series called Yours, and it's about how to devote our life to God. How do we move from a place of saying mine about our time, our relationships, uh, our abilities, our money, our bodies, and our story to saying yours to God about all of those things and enter more deeply into God's love and God's joy and God's mission as we go from saying mine to saying yours before God as an act of worship. Last week, we did money, part one. Uh, Because of the blizzard, we decided to to split it up into two messages. And so I encourage you to download the first message, which is on Jesus' teaching about wealth in Matthew 6. Today, we're going to look at uh, another teaching from Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew in in, uh, Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. So a year and a half ago, my wife uh, took our daughter, Olivia, into Toys R Us. And Laura was carrying a coupon for a very specific item that we needed, but nevertheless had to take Olivia through all these aisles that had toys placed at eye level, cart level, with a three-year-old, which Olivia was three, almost three at the time. And so the store is designed it that way, so that if you get to the necessities, you have to walk through the non-necessities. And Olivia would turn, and with each turn she would gasp, Look at these beautiful toys. The incredible packaging. Mommy, can we get this? Mommy, can we get that? And each time Laura would say, no, we, we can't buy those things. That's not what we came here to get. Can't get those things. And so eventually Olivia got it, and she changed her perspective. And on the way back to the checkout counter, Olivia would, would guess, can't buy that. Can't buy those. Look at all the pretty things we can't buy. Now, before any of us get our hard-earned paychecks or or whatever your source of income is, before that gets to us, uh, Social Security has to be taken out, federal taxes has to be taken out, Illinois state taxes have to be taken out, and then after all those taxes are taken out, there are other, uh, other places where our money is already accounted for. For instance, student loans. The average undergrad student loan right now, or the uh, average undergrad uh, amount of debt that you get when you graduate with a BA is $29,500 in Illinois. So that's what you start with, that much you owe. And that's just undergrad. That's not even a professional degree. So we're paying off, we're paying off our, our debt when we get our paychecks. Our landlords are ready for rent. They're like, I don't care that you have that much debt. You're living in my space. You're going to pay me some money. We pay our landlord. The utility companies want to be paid for providing heat and cooling and water and internet to our homes. Uh, The cell phone company wants to take a chunk from our paychecks. The city of Chicago is ready to collect for who knows what. They caught on camera or didn't catch on camera or whatever (laughs) happened. But they're ready to collect. And they've got more lawyers than we do. So once you look at what's left over from all of that, it's like, yeah, Olivia's right. Look at all the pretty things we can't buy. Look at all the fun trips we can't take. Oh, you're on Instagram going to Bermuda, but I can't do that. (laughs) 
Um, look at all, look at the car we can't get, like a basic car. We can't even get the car that we really need because of all that's been taken so far. Look at the home we can't afford. We've got to keep renting. Look at all the good causes that we'd love to get behind, but we can't, we can't support our local school. We can't support this mission we really believe in. Um, look at the grad school we can't go to because we're paying off loans from undergrad. We look at that check, we look at that direct deposit, we look at that bank statement, and it represents hard work, and it doesn't go very far. And we see what we can't do, right? So most of us feel a very strong sense of being financially limited. And it's a very natural feeling. Being financially limited, we see what we cannot do. Now there's a danger that Jesus references that I want to highlight for our congregation, it is this. There's a danger that when we feel financially limited, we will be financially passive. When we feel financially limited, we will be financially passive. What does that mean? What does it mean to be financially passive? First, it means that we assume that what we are taking in is not enough to be strategic with. It's not enough to plan for paying off debt. It's not enough income to plan for savings. It's not enough income to plan for investing. We assume we don't make enough to plan around our money. Number two, it assumes that we, that we only have enough for ourselves. We look at that income amount and we look at what's required of us and go, I, I barely have enough for myself, maybe even not that. And we just assume that it's all for us because it's such a small amount. It must be mine because it's such a small amount, especially after the utilities and the government and the banks have taken so much. And they're big and they've got lots and I'm little and I have a little. What I've got left over must be all for me. So taken together, this is what that looks like. You take those two things together. Spur of the moment decisions about how we spend our money. It's worth it. This is fun. I deserve this. You deserve this. Spur of the moment decisions to spend money. Spur of the moment decisions to be generous. Ah, I really want to really move in this way. I really want to give in this way. But it's not really planned out. It's, it's pretty immediate. And economists and those who study personal finance will tell you that spur of the moment decisions about money means that we will consume far more than we will give and invest. Personal people in personal finance and economists will tell you that if, that if individuals and families do make spur-of-the-moment decisions, they will consume far more than they will invest and give and save. When we feel financially limited, we are tempted to become financially passive. Now, when we're in this position, we need to know what God thinks when he sees the same paycheck, the same bank statement that we see. We need to know what he thinks. We need to know what his plan is. We need to know what his perspective is because our perspective can be so small and so limited. Um, our income, whatever form it takes, is from God. 100% of it is from God, no matter what form it takes, no matter how hard we work for it. 100% of it is owned by God and from God. And when he hands it to us, he doesn't say, yeah, there's lots of pretty things you can't buy. 
Yeah, there's lots of things you can't do. I'm, I, I'm only giving you a little bit. God says, when he gives us a paycheck, he says, bring me a return on investment from this. Bring me a return on investment from what I am giving you for my own wealth. Um, bless the world as I have blessed you. I will bless the nations through you. I will bless the city through you. I will bless your family through you. Bless the world as I am blessing you right now. That's what God thinks when he sees the same paycheck, the same bank statement, the same direct deposit receipt that we see. And God ennobles our finances through that expectation. God ennobles our finances by expecting a return on investment from our income. God says, I am trusting you with responsibility to carry out my work. We will partner together. We will partner financially together, and that is why I'm giving you this income. Now, before Jesus went to the cross, he illustrated this truth with a story. And in this story, we find a character who had a very similar experience to us, very, very similar day-to-day experiences we have. This character, other people had more money than he did. And it was real obvious. It was like real obvious that other people made a lot more than he made. Um, he wasn't exactly sure if he could do very much with the very little that he was given. And his master expected a return on investment from his limited finances. So he's very much like us. He did not have a lot comparatively. Um, he wasn't exactly sure he could do very much with that little bit. But his master expected a return on investment from his limited finances. Now, friends, we need to listen to this story because so that we don't make the same choice that he made. And we need to listen to the story because we don't, so that we don't miss out on the joy that he missed out on. And we need to listen to his story so that we don't experience the separation and regret that he experienced. So, if you haven't already, please turn to the parable of the talents as we listen to this story. It's Matthew 25, verse 14. And it starts like this. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. Stop there. Jesus is telling a fictional story about a master and his servants. And he wants to give perspective to the story that we are in right now. So this is a fictional story, but it is very close to home because this story is ultimately about us and God. And we are living in that story right now. It's a live story. It's a living, breathing, dynamic, not sure how it's going to turn out in the end story that you and I are in right now. This congregation's in this story. It's a fictional story that's going to help us connect with the story of heaven and earth being reunited. As God dwells with his people and renews his people and partners with his people to bless the world through the power of Jesus. That's the story that's going on right now. So don't be mistaken. This fictional story is very true. Jesus likens himself to a master going on a journey and he likens his disciples and all who follow Jesus now as servants of the master who are trusted with the master's wealth. So uh, verse 14b, verse 14, second half of it that is, the master entrusted to them his property. Now don't miss this. The master entrusted them his property. He owned it. They managed it. 
It was his property. They were stewarding it. They were managing it. They were making decisions about it. But ultimately, it's his. Secondly, this is a very wealthy owner. And this is where some cultural context really helps. Almost no one in this culture had wealth to invest. And almost uh, a very small percentage of people in this culture had cash money at all, let alone cash money to invest, let alone the amount that's represented here, which we'll talk about in a minute. This is an extremely wealthy master, far surpassing the 1%. This is the point zero 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 one percent of ancient culture. And so it's a very wealthy master. But don't miss, these are very trusted servants. The master is going away and he is entrusting non-family members, unheard of in ancient world, with the responsibility to invest his fortune. And he is investing a fortune through them. Some of you may be familiar with Circle of Trust. Anyone familiar with the Circle of Trust? If you're not, just know that it's a Circle of Trust and that some people are in and that some people are out. And it means a lot if you're in and a lot if you're out. These servants are totally trusted by the Master. They're ennobled by the Master. Verse 15. To one he gave five talents. And now, that not abilities... We use the word talent to be like, I'm so talented. Look, I can play the oboe. That's not what this is about. <laughs> and I can't play the oboe. This is cash. Okay? This is cash money. This is hard money. This is good at the marketplace money. This is lots of money. Okay? This is green money and he's giving it to them. So to one he gave five talents. It's a stack like this. To another, he gave two, stack like this. And to another one, stack like this, each according to his ability. So, hey, here's the interesting thing about this story. It's pretty unequal. There are very unequal amounts. And they're distributed to servants who have unequal abilities. And that's, like, not polite to talk about, but, like, they each had different capacities for managing money. And, so, and the master's like, yeah, I'm going to evaluate them and I'm going to make a decision and yeah, you can handle five and you can handle one. Unequal amounts, unequal capacities to handle those amounts and there's like no apologizing for that. And yet, none of the servants are unworthy or despised. They all get trust from the master. They actually all get the same instructions, which is double my money while I'm away. So... Verse 15, second half of verse 15. Then he went away. Then he went away. Now don't miss it. This is the action moment. This is the activating moment. It's the paycheck moment. It's the first of the month moment. He gives them money. He gives them instructions. And he's like, when I go, you need to invest this money. See ya. Your move. Your action point. This is the action time. This is when the electricity gets turned on. This is when decisions have to be made. He's leaving town. It's their move. What will the servants do? Look with me in verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. At once. One of the servants acted immediately. Because who knows how long the master will be gone. I've got time. I'm going to invest not only the money, I'm going to invest the time I have. Because it's time to act. And we don't know how he made the, the five talents more, but if he's going to double his money, he needs to invest time, creativity, 
thinking, strategy, partnerships, risk. That's how you grow your money. That's how you grow your wealth. Undoubtedly, he had to put his whole life full time and, and then some into doubling his master's money. And he made five talents more, it says. At some point, we don't know when, at some point, that investment, that risk, that seed that he planted in the ground grew into a plant and that plant grew fruit and that fruit looked good and he sold that fruit and it made money and it just made money. It doubled his money. He made 100% profit on the investments that he made on behalf of the master. All the risks, the planning, the budgeting, the hard work, the partnerships, the uncertainty, it pays off. Have you ever planted a garden and seen it grow? It's rewarding. It is so much fun to invest yourself in something and then watch it grow. It's equally discouraging when you invest yourself in something and it doesn't work out. That's part of, any investor will tell you, that's part of, that's part of investing. You have to put up not only with the risk, you have to put up with the disappointment, but the joy is so much sweeter and more exciting when it grows. This is what God calls being fruitful and multiplying. And he wants us to do this in the world. He wants us to be fruitful with everything he's given us and make a return on investment for all that is true, good, and beautiful to his glory. In this fictional story, the guy with the five talents is doing exactly that by obeying his master. Verse 17, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Now, comparison doesn't stop the guy from investing. He's not like, well, I didn't get as much, so I'm not as responsible. He went, he, his timing was the same. His urgency was the same, and he went at once, and he invested it intentionally, and he doubled the money as well. Verse 18 Here's the interesting guy in the story. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now why in the world would he do that? Why would he do that? Why ignore a direct command from his master? Why would he be protective with money that wasn't his? Why would he be passive with money that his master expects a return on investment from? You know, Jesus doesn't tell us, but maybe it was because it felt safer. Maybe it just felt downright safer. And he may have been thinking, you know what, this is all I have. If I lose this, I'm in big trouble. So he buried the money in the ground, which at that point in time in history was the equivalent of a checking account. It's a low-risk, non-interest-bearing way to just store your money. And so that's what he does. Maybe it felt safer. Maybe it felt easier. Maybe it was just more comfortable to just bury his money in the ground. Because if he buries it, he doesn't have to think about it. If he buries it, he doesn't have to risk with it. If, because if his money is invested, his life will be invested too. And so if he disengages his money from his master's work, he can disengage his life from his master's work, and it's just more comfortable that way. It's just less complicated that way. It's just cleaner that way. So just put it off. I'm going to bury it because I want to live my life in peace. Not only is it safer, it's also more comfortable. Maybe this relatively small amount gave him the excuse that he needed to live for himself rather than live for his master. 
hey, you know what? I've only got one talent. There's lots of pretty things I can't buy. My master obviously doesn't care. He cares about the five-talent guy. I can see that, but he doesn't care about me because he's only given me this small one-talent amount. He's made my life as hard as it is, and so I'm just going to survive and get through. I'm going to bury this talent. So he buries it. Now verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Okay, it took a long time, maybe more time than any of the servants thought, but the master made good on what he said he would do. He like followed through and called them all back into the same room and said, where's my money? Where's my investment? What was it like? Was it fun? What was it like to see my wealth grow in the world? So he gathers the inner circle together and everyone's got a satchel and everyone's got a story to tell. And so what story are they going to tell? Verse 20, the man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. You can almost hear the joy in his words. It's, he's stepping forward confidently, not, cock, not, not as a cocky man. He's just grateful. Master, you trusted me. You trusted me. And I finally get it. I, I finally get the joy. This is the most exciting 10 years of my life. And to think that I might have been just stayed put in my small, safe world, my small, passive world. I can't even imagine what that would have been like now that I've lived 10 years on adventure with you in partnership with you. Thank you for having that expectation over me. Thank you for involving me in your work. Thank you for trusting me with your money. And his master replies, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. Now I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And see, the master is just like beaming. Nice work. You made me so proud. I gave this money to you because I trusted you with it. And you think that was fun. We've only just gotten started. Keep those talents in your hand. Every other master in the ancient world would have been like, okay, you get a small cut, I take the rest. This master says, no, you keep all that because we're going to do more investing together. This actually is going to bring us into deeper partnership together. So keep, that, keep those talents in your hand and, and, and let's have some more fun and joy in investing together. The proceedings of the inner circle continue in verse 22. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, verse 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. Now I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Now this two-talent servant was less than half as capable as the five-talent servant. But he has been equally faithful. Yet he had a completely different amount, but he had equal amounts of faithfulness and equal amounts of joy and equal amounts of intimacy with his master. And he receives the same commendation. You are in my inner circle just as equally as the five-talent servant, so enter into my joy and let's adventure together. There's no need for comparison. There's no need for pity parties. There's no time for it because it's just time for joyful participation in the work of growing the master's estate. But there's one servant left. There's one guy left. And it's in verse 24, Then the man who had received the one talent came. 
And he's like the musician that walks out on the stage and he's not practiced. This is like the student that starts taking the exam without even understanding the questions because zero time has been, st been spent studying. There is a real hot, sweaty spotlight on the one talent servant. He wasn't expecting this. He wasn't expecting this because he had one talent. Not very much. Not enough for a hot spotlight. Not enough for accountability. And yet, the accountability is so hot and so hard, the master is going to question him as he holds his dirty cloth, covering up a one talent in his hands. And, and he says, Master, verse 24, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So, I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. You want a summary of what the one talent servant was saying? You know what? At the end of the day, master, I don't trust you. Yeah, you know, I don't trust you. You're a hard man. You're gathering seed. You're making profits. You're not even trying. I don't trust you. You're kind of angry. And so, I'm not interested in partnership with you. I don't think you're gonna, I don't think you're gonna do right by me. So here, have it back. I buried it. It was easier. Now get out of my life. I don't trust, I didn't trust you with your money. You, you, you entrusted me with your money, but I didn't trust you with your money. I let fear turn me into a hoarder rather than investor. And I love one preacher's definition of a hoarder. Selfish, fear-based stockpiling. That's what hoarding is. That's exactly what the servant did. Selfish, fear-based stockpiling because he did not trust God. I think it's worth asking, what is your view of God? If, if, if your bank statement was to be opened up, what would, it, what would it tell, if you were to exegete your bank statement, what would it say about your view of God? Do you think he's an angry God who's against you? Do you think he's withholding from you? Do you trust him? It's worth asking. What does our money say about our view of God? Verse 26, his master replies, you wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. You had an opportunity to invest. There's one really clear way that you knew about. You could have invested it. In short, the master says, instead of fearing scarcity, you should have feared me. Instead of fearing scarcity, you should have feared me. I'm bigger than scarcity. I'm bigger than lack. You should have feared me. My, your view of me should have been bigger. And you should have trusted me. You lost sight, servant, of my high expectations for you. He gave him enough to earn interest. The one talent man was holding 20 years of wages in his hand. That's what one talent was worth. 20 years of wages in cash. See, the master can see the incredible wealth that the one-talent servant was holding. The one-talent servant couldn't, couldn't hear it out of fear and anger, perhaps. 
and a desire for comfort. Friends, we have so little idea of how much wealth we have, but it's truly incredible, even in comparison to the rest of the world. God has given us so much. We are so unaware of it because of our fear and sometimes our anger and sometimes our desire for comfort. The master makes one last move that's going to turn the parable on its head. Verse 28, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more and will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. As I said before, Middle Eastern listeners are going to be expecting that the master takes almost everything and gives the servants a pittance. But what the master does is he gives the money to the ones who are ready to pass it on and not keep it for themselves. The master is ready to give more money to people who will not let it stick to their hands because he wants to partner with them in growing his estate. He's not greedy. He's not evil. He's actually an extremely generous master. And the final act of the story finishes it. The master says, and throw that, not my, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now you might be asking, if this is the final verdict of the master, and if this master is representing God, is God angry and ready to cast us off for not being generous enough with our money? Now, there's always a difference in a parable between the person telling the story and the people in the story. And the biggest difference between the master in the story and the master telling the story is that the master telling the story, before he went away, he became a servant. And he was cast out into outer darkness. And he was utterly separated from the father. And he was utterly made poor. And he was utterly in a place of suffering and contempt and evil. And when he was resurrected from the dead, he brought us back with him into the circle of trust on his merits and not ours. And he calls everybody who is made new in Jesus to be, to be reconciled to the master and put back into partnership with the master investing our money and our lives on Christ's merits and on Christ's ability to return on invest our money for the kingdom of God, not our own. We are invited into a grace-based, Jesus-empowered, love-filled partnership with the master. out of a secure and abiding knowledge that God loves us, we are, see, we are free to seek a return on investment as those who have been united with Jesus Christ. So, a very legitimate question might be, if God it wants to ennoble our finances by expecting a return on investment, where do I invest my money in the kingdom of God? How does that happen right now in the real story that we're playing out? You know what? There's a lot of good options for that. There's a, there are many legitimate ways to invest your money in the kingdom of God and to do so in a way that honors the Lord and also brings you into partnership with Jesus. Now, about three years ago, when we began to pray and dream and feel a calling toward planting Emmanuel Anglican Church, 
one, one specific way that we saw the kingdom of God coming was through a vibrant Anglican local church right here in Chicago where people could grow in Christ through worship, through community, through discipleship, and through mission. And we saw a church that would exist for the sake of Chicago. And so people all over the United States said, you know what, this is one way that we want to invest in the kingdom of God. And they gave tens of thousands of dollars, ultimately hundreds of thousands of dollars, so that we could meet here this Sunday and beyond, so that we could be here in Chicago, be encouraged in our vocations, seek out mission and ennoble the poor. And so today I want to invite you to join those people. If you consider Emmanuel Anglican Church to be part of your life, if you have experienced the love of God through this church and you consider it your local church, I want to invite you to invest 10% of your income into Emmanuel for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of growing the kingdom of God. A 10% of income is something that Scripture teaches as a starting place for worship with our finances, a starting place to say, all of my money belongs to you, God. It's a starting place, not a destination. Some of you perhaps are giving 10% and are called to give more. Laura and I have been talking about how we are called to give more even in this next year. Because God ennobles our finances as we invest them in the kingdom of God. Lives are being changed through this church. Lives will continue to be changed through this church. One way I want to, consider, I want to invite you to consider thinking about this is how have you been blessed through the ministry of this local church and then begin to think about and dream about and imagine the people who will be blessed in the same way as you a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. When you tithe, it is about those people. When you tithe, it is about lives being changed as people come into the presence of the living Christ. It is the way that we, not only that we keep our lights on, not only the way that we print our bulletins, but also the way that we invest in uh, transformed lives as the Son of God is lifted high and all are uh, drawn to Him and changed through Him. Think of this as an opportunity. In Northwest India, there's a group of people who can barely give anything. And starting in 1910, this group of people started a practice where they would, while they were cooking the rice, they would take a handful of rice and they would put it aside for the church, for mission. And they would do that at every meal where they would have rice. They would just scoop a little bit of rice and put it aside. This is called Bufai Tham, which I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. But anyway, that's how it's spelled. And today, that practice... Uh, funds millions of dollars worth of missions and local church ministry among the poor in Northwest India. The poor in Northwest India get to see, get to invest. They're not withheld from investing in the kingdom of God. They're not withheld from partnering with the master because of their limited finances. Now imagine if we all did this. Imagine if we as a church, no matter what our income levels were, were giving to the kingdom of God investing in the local church and then beyond the local church for the sake of our city. Do you know what it would do? It would involve us more deeply with what God is doing in Chicago. It would capture our hearts in a way that right now our hearts have not been captured as God wants to capture them. And on that day when we stand before Jesus, we will 
individually, we will, in some ways as a congregation, say, you gave us an opportunity to invest in you. Here is what is yours. And the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful church. Enter into the joy of your master. The quality and intensity of our mission depends on us listening to the warnings of Jesus in this text. All of us, me included. The quality and intensity and capacity of our mission depends on our belief that God is a good God and that he does have joy for us on the other end of sacrificial giving. And I believe that we will answer this call. This involves planning. This involves sacrifice. But does not end there. It ends with the joy of the master. So friends, let us go from saying mine over our money to saying yours to God over our money. It's the truest thing that we can say about our bank statement. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.